Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to RUF. So glad that you're here. My name is Lewis Lovett. If I haven't met you yet, I want to especially say welcome to you. Uh, if you're checking out RUF for the first time, I know that it was a full and busy weekend for most of you with much less work being done probably than as usual. So I know you have a lot going on, a lot of demands on your time. So I just want to say thank you. I know you make a particular choice to come uh, and be a part of what this community does on Tuesday nights. And I'm really, really grateful to have you here. We're, we're doing a series at RUF called Jesus Gives Us Life. And, and we're talking about what it means that in the midst of the, the real day-to-day experience of our lives, that we might have something in Christ that brings us satisfaction and meaning and goodness and truth and beauty. We've talked about how Jesus gives us a life of joy. We talked last week about how Jesus gives us a life of worship. And tonight we're going to talk about how Jesus gives us a life of forgiveness. And we're going to do that using a text from John chapter 8. It's the last verse, technically, of John 7, and then 8, 1 through 11. And you'll notice, if you have your Bible, and we printed it for you on your handout, that this part of the, this part of the Gospel of John is usually in brackets. And what my Bible says right here is, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. So I just want to explain that really quickly. The, the earliest Greek manuscripts that exist of the Gospel of John don't have this story in them. It's not there. And in fact, as scholars have looked at that, the Greek of this text, they've noticed that it seems to be a little different stylistically from the rest of John. And so it probably wasn't in the earliest copies of the New Testament. But for a couple of different reasons, it's included in your Bible. But with this caveat, your, your Bible is not trying to trick you. It's not trying to fool you. It's very honest about stuff like this, which you can appreciate the people who publish the Bibles that we use. But, but conservative scholars and the church throughout history has included this because the assumption is that this is still a true account of Jesus. At the end of John, in chapter 20, verse 30, John writes, this is not everything that Jesus had done. There are many other things that are not written down. If they were all written down, they would fill every book in the world. And so my guess, my feeling, is that this is, this is one of those things that Jesus did that just wasn't written down. Augustine actually says, uh, he, he makes this prediction that a scholar, a, a scribe, left this out of the earlier manuscripts because it was just too gracious of Jesus, and he couldn't handle it. I, lo- I don't know if that's true. I think it's cool that Augustine said that. But, but the other reason it's included is because this story is exactly in line with what the rest of the Bible and what the rest of John teaches us about the character and the action and the heart of Jesus. And so over the course of centuries... And even in my own life, God has used this passage in powerful ways in people's lives. And that's my hope is that he's going to do that tonight. So with that being said, let's look at our passage, John seven fifty three through eight eleven. It'd be great if you could look along with me at this story. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to him, Let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. 
But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. God's word is absolutely true, and it's good, and he gives it to us because he loves us. You pray with me, and then we'll get started. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of this night. Thank you that when we come to you, you receive us with open arms. I pray that you would be at work right now through this story and through the heart of yours that comes out through it to to help us to love you more and to love each other and to embrace the reality of our forgiveness in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was the fall of 2002. I was a senior in high school. I'll do the math for you. I'm 33 years old. It was the end of the fall semester. Time for final exams at my high school, at Webb High School in Knoxville, Tennessee. And uh, let, let, me, let me just start by saying that everyone in this room uh, was more studious in high school than I was. Okay? It's just a, a fact of the existence of you in this room. So, I, you know, I did okay in school. I did fine. But I wasn't super motivated to overachieve in my classes. And I had applied early decision to the college that I wanted to go to, Wofford College, go Terriers, and, I, and somehow got in. And so at this point, I found out like in November, I think. And so it's my senior year. It's final exam time. I'm not a great student. I already got into college. And I've got a calculus exam the next day. So what do I do? I lock myself in my bedroom and I study all day long. Okay, let me, let me clarify that. I didn't study all day long. I, I caught up on all the reading that I was behind in all day long. Okay, let me clarify that again. I had not finished the fifth Harry Potter book yet. And I really, really wanted to. It had come out that summer. This is in the days when Harry Potter books were like coming out every year or two. And I had just gotten into it, and I was almost done with number five, The Order of the Phoenix, arguably the best one. We can talk later if you have strong feelings. And so I spent all of my time in my room with the door locked, Reading Harry Potter 5, The Order of the Phoenix. And I had the door locked because I did not want to be caught so blatantly disregarding my responsibilities as a student at the school that my parents sent me to. And if one of my parents came and knocked on the door to check on me, I would shove Harry Potter underneath my bed and pull out my calculus textbook and put it on my bed. And they would ask me how I was going. I'd say, I'm just, you know, plugging along in here, just doing, just, just working. I have so much more work to do. In my head, I'm like, I've got like 180 more pages to go, so can you give me this space? And, and, and I, didn't want them, I didn't want them to know what I was doing. I didn't want to be caught in the act. I, I had played it out in my head what I would say if my dad caught me. I would, Dad, I hear you. I have the exam, but you're acting just like Cornelius Fudge. Voldemort is back. It's not business as usual. You can't expect me to study for this exam. I don't think that he would have understood. I don't think that he would have understood. But... I, I didn't want to get caught, and so, and so I had that book ready to go underneath the bed at, at any time, and I was sort of on edge, a little afraid, listening out for the footsteps of my parents in case they were coming to check on how my studying was going. So I'm, I'm saying this because we, we can all relate to that feeling of a little on edge with what we're doing, a little on edge with our own story, a little afraid that we're about to get discovered, a little afraid that we're about to be caught in the act of doing something that we would not want people to know that we are doing. And sometimes it's something small, right? 
Like you're in the library and a friend like catches you and you're watching Netflix instead of studying and you don't look real legit. This happens, it happens to all of us. Okay, it's okay. We all need a break. I understand. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes it's much more serious, right? Sometimes the things that we're afraid to get caught in have to do with what we do in secret. They have to do with what happened on the weekends with a boy or a girl. They have to do with the search history in our computer. They have to do with the relationships that are falling apart, the loneliness that we're feeling that we're desperately, urgently trying to cover up and to hide. We have these things, these parts of our story that we don't really want people to know, that we're nervous about being found out. What is the thing for you that you would be most nervous to be found out about? That you'd be most terrified to be caught in the act of? We're, we're talking about this story in John 8. It's really intense because it's about a woman who is exposed, who is found out, who is caught in the act. It's like our deepest fears coming true. And what I want to do as we start here is I want to challenge you to try to put yourself in the shoes of this woman for just a second. Uh, this is a woman who is an adulterer. So we don't know much of her backstory. I don't know if she was married or if the guy that she's with is married or if they're both married. I don't know if she has children. Uh, all we know is that she is with a man. She is sleeping with a man who she is not, who she is not married to. She's involved in this. She's involved in this affair, and it's all secret. It's all in the dark. Nobody else knows about it. And, and we're told by the religious rulers when they bring her, the scribes and the Pharisees, these are sort of the head people in the temple, they say, we caught her in the act of adultery. Now, I don't, I don't know what happened, but this is a pretty terrifying scene for her. And, and, and as I imagine it, I imagine that someone overheard her or someone saw her slip into this man's house or out in the morning, and they went and told someone at the temple... And the scribe or the Pharisee that they told grabbed a couple of other guys. And they went over to this house and they burst in the doors and they put their hands on her shoulders and they grabbed her and they dragged her to the synagogue, to the temple. So you can imagine that she's half-dressed, hair disheveled, crying, head down, terrified. This is a woman who's been caught in the act of something terrible. She's been dragged away She's being publicly disgraced. She's been put in a room of all powerful men and just her. And what, is the, what are the words she's hearing? They're asking Jesus if it's okay if they stone her to death. Can you imagine what she must have been feeling? The shame, the dirtiness, the guilt the fear, how utterly alone she must have felt in that room. Now, most of us have not been in a situation as dramatic as this, but we know a little bit about that feeling, that feeling of desperation, of abandonment, of worthlessness, of terror, of shame and embarrassment. We know what that feels like. And if we don't know what it feels like, we're terrified of knowing what it feels like. We're terrified of being caught, of being found out. And the good news of the gospel for us tonight is that even there, 
even in the darkest shame and fear, Jesus comes to us and he gives us life. That even there we are not outside of his love, that even there he extends his life to us and he gives us a life of forgiveness. So I just want to talk about three things that Jesus, we see in Jesus tonight. Tonight we see in Jesus a refusal, a redirection, and a restoration. A refusal, a redirection, and a restoration. So first, Jesus gives a refusal. The men bring this woman in, in, her, in this moment, right, in this moment of fear and shame and terror, and they bring her to Jesus, and they ask him this question. Jesus, in the law, Moses told us we should stone a woman like this. What do you say? And then the story tells us, well, they're, they're not really concerned about right and wrong here. They're not really concerned about justice. They're not really concerned with mercy. They're not even concerned earnestly with knowing Jesus' wisdom. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to catch Jesus in a tricky situation. Because Jesus has been preaching and teaching about love and kindness and humility and mercy and tenderness and forgiveness. This is what Jesus has been teaching about. And so uh, my, my best guess is that they are hoping that Jesus is going to say, you know, you're right. She's a sinner. She broke one of the Ten Commandments. We have to follow the law. We have to stone her. We have to kill her. For the, for the Pharisees and the scribes, this is a win-win. One, we get to feel really good about ourselves and almost relish in the demise of someone around us. But secondly, Jesus is kind of contradicting himself. They want to, they want to destroy his reputation. They want to ruin what people think about Jesus. They're, they're trying to catch him. They're just begging Jesus to condemn her. They're just begging him to condemn her. That's what they want him to do. That's what they expect him to do. And in, and in the midst of this, seeing this woman in the, in the fullness of her shame and brokenness, and people who are pointing to God's word and saying, here's what we should do. We should condemn her. What does Jesus say? He doesn't say a word. He's just silent. He refuses to play this weird game with them. And, and most importantly, for what I want to talk about tonight, Jesus refuses to condemn her. He refuses to condemn her. Jesus does not want to punish you. Jesus does not hope that you get caught so that you can get what you deserve. That's not what he wants. In fact, if you know him, and if you were actually coming before him, honestly, he will refuse to condemn you, even when you condemn yourself, even when others condemn you. That is not what Jesus does. He insists on another way. Some of you guys have been in college for three years now. Some of you have been in college for a couple of months. And some of you in the past three years, or maybe the past three months, or maybe the past three days have made big mistakes have done things that you really regret, that have really hurt you or that have really hurt other people. Sometimes these are things that have been done to you by others, but that still fill you with feelings of shame and brokenness. And I want to remind you tonight, I want to encourage you with the reality that when Jesus sees you, he does not scowl and he does not wag his finger. He refuses to condemn you. 
He welcomes you to Him with open arms. When you come to Jesus, there is no judgment. He refuses to do it. He's actually just glad. He's just glad to know you. He's just glad to be having a conversation with you. He's just glad that you can see Him and know His love. Jesus refuses to condemn this woman, and He refuses to condemn us. The the second thing I want to talk about is this redirection. Jesus gives a redirection here. This scene gets a little weird at this point. They, They bring the woman to Jesus... They ask him if it's okay, it's okay to stone her. He doesn't say anything, and then what does he do? He bends down and starts drawing on the ground in the dirt with his finger. And, it, and the, the passage says they, they kept asking him. They're like, Jesus, hey, hey, Jesus, what are you doing down there? And he's just silently drawing on the ground with his finger. What is going on here? I don't know exactly what's going on here. My, the, the, the most compelling thing that I've heard that the scholars have predicted is that what Jesus is doing is writing something like the Ten Commandments on the ground. Or writing something like, the Lord says, be holy as I am holy. Or writing something like, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He, he's writing some reminder of the radical call of God for us to live good lives, holy lives, loving lives. He's showing them, he's reminding them what God calls us to obey. What's in God's word to do. And then eventually he looks up and he finally speaks these famous words. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone at her. We, we all struggle to live like these scribes and these Pharisees in this moment. And here's what I mean. We tend to focus a lot on other people's sins, other people's brokenness, other people's mistakes. It just makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves. So when we hear a sermon, we think, oh, I'm so glad Lewis is here because he needs to hear that. And when we read a Bible verse, we don't think about what it's saying to us. We think about what it's saying to somebody else. And part of us almost likes it when we see someone we know who says they're a Christian at a party getting drunk and hooking up because then we get to focus on how bad they are. And Jesus redirects our eyes. He puts a mirror up and he says, no, it's actually not about this woman. It's actually about you. I'm not even really going to talk to you about this woman right now. I want to talk to you about yourselves about your own hearts. Is, is the point to make us realize we're all equally bad people? I actually don't think that's what it is. I think the point is to make us reckon with the reality that in the midst of our sin and shame and mistake and regret, Jesus has forgiven us and he's made us clean. And if Jesus refuses to condemn someone, why do we insist on condemning them? Why do we almost relish in an opportunity to see someone else pay for what they've done when we know that the freedom and the acceptance that we experience has nothing to do with anything that we've done and everything to do with Jesus' death on the cross for us? Part of walking with God means not only receiving God's forgiveness for yourself, but accepting God's forgiveness of other people. 
And this is actually central to every relationship that you have, to every friendship that you have, to every family member that you know, to your boyfriends, your girlfriends, to your husbands and wives someday. Can you live out of the reality that not just you, but they have been made clean? They have been accepted. They have not been condemned. Who in your life tonight can you think of that you're refusing to forgive? That you're holding a grudge against? That you're looking at the way they've lived and you've said, you're not as strong, you're not as committed, you're not as faithful, you're not as good as me. The call of Christ is to say, no, they have been made clean just like you have. And the only way we can love others is by actually realizing that they have been forgiven just as much as we have if they are in Christ. Jesus redirects us to look at ourselves. We get a refusal, a redirection. And then lastly, Jesus gives a restoration. When Jesus offers this challenge, he who is without sin, these Pharisees and scribes, one by one, they, they start to get it. They start to understand that when you come to Jesus, we're all the same. We're all guilty. We're all made clean. And they start to leave. They start to walk away. And this woman who's been brought to Jesus, accused in guilt and shame and fear, now is left alone, standing with Jesus right in front of her. And he asks her such a simple question. Where are they? Where did everybody go? And as I imagine this scene, I imagine this woman has been so gripped by fear and so gripped by shame and is in the terror of her own nastiness that she has not even realized that these men who are standing behind her aren't there. And she looks around. Jesus says, has no one condemned you? In shock. No. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I judge you. Neither do I accuse you. Go now and sin no more. It reminds me of the scene from the Lord of the Rings. In the, in the first book or the first movie, Frodo and his companions, are, they make it to Weathertop. They're with Strider in the wilderness trying to make it to Rivendell. And as they're uh, on the top of this mountain, Strider goes away. And while he's gone, the, the Nazgul come upon them. These are the ring race. These are the agents of the enemy cloaked in, in black. And they see Frodo, and they want to take him. And so there's this scene where, where Frodo is on the ground, on his back, and there's this kind of semicircle of these tall, cloaked, terrible creatures closing in on him, swords drawn, ready to strike. And then out of the darkness, Strider jumps, but he's not Strider, he's Aragorn, the king. And he's wielding this flaming brand, and he puts himself and this light and his strength in between Frodo and these dark forces, and he fights them off. We, we know that feeling of being surrounded by darkness, like the fear, the anxiety, the panic, the guilt, the shame, it's closing in. We know what that feels like. And Jesus says, when you come to me, I will get in between you and the darkness. And I will ward it off. I will fight it away with the light of my truth and my love 
and my presence. I will free you from the darkness and I will give you, I'll give you a new life. He tells this woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. What, what restores us? What changes us? What gives us power in our lives? The message here is not that we need to change and to shape up and to get right for God and then he'll accept us. That's not the message of the Bible. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that he loves us first. And his love and his acceptance and his forgiveness is the fuel for change in our lives. We change because we've been loved. So if you feel stuck in patterns of destructive behavior or addictions, or you feel like you just can't get away from the mistakes and regrets of your past, if you're filled with anger and hatred and you can't let it go, the solution to your problems actually has nothing to do with fixing your circumstances. It has nothing to do with trying harder. All you have to do is to turn and look into the face of Jesus. Because he is standing right before you. And when he looks at you, he does not scowl. And he does not frown. He is smiling. In the midst of your shame and brokenness and fear, Jesus is smiling at you. And as you start to behold that, through your friendships, through God's word, through worship, through prayer, as you start to behold that, as you start to come to him honestly, telling him what he already knows, the whole truth about your whole self, what you will experience is a love and an acceptance and a delight in you that will actually change your life. That is the thing that has the power to do this. Jesus gives us a life of forgiveness. He offers it to us. And if you do not feel like you are forgiven, if you do not feel clean, if you do not feel free from the darkness that is closing in on you, usually it's because we have not asked. Usually it's because we have not been willing to come to him and show him our true selves, our true colors, our true hearts, our true motivations, our true desires, our true story. He is offering you the gift of forgiveness. It's like a present that we just are holding in our hands and have not unwrapped. He forgives you and it restores your dignity. He forgives you and it restores your humanity. He forgives you, it restores your relationships. He forgives you, it restores your purity. He wants you to know his love. He wants you to experience his adamant, insistent refusal to condemn you because he loves you. And he wants to give you life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of this night. Thank you for the miraculous story of your love that refuses to condemn us no matter where we are and what we've done, that when we come to you, we see your face smiling on us. Help us to receive that reality. Help us to know your love and your forgiveness so intimately that it empowers us, that it restores us to live lives of fullness and joy and peace that you want for us. Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.